You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning, and welcome to Saturday Morning Live. It's the 1st of July uh, on a Saturday, and you're joined here from our studios in Mbattlefathu in Morden uh, by myself, Shazil Lone, and my co-presenter in the studio today, Zishan Mirza. Good morning, Z. Good morning, Shazil. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well. The weather's getting better. Yeah, so indeed, indeed. Enjoying that. Yeah, half the year's already gone, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's flown by and so much has happened as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so we're obviously we're, we're enjoying summer, but a lot of, uh, you know, sort of new stories, um, both old and new, seem to be popping up. Um, but um, it seems like cost of living is still the thing on everyone's minds and interest rates. That seems to be the, the real worry in the world at the moment. Yeah, I think, you know, um, we could have... Uh, turned up every week and spoken about interest rates and inflation almost in the sense that um, it's uh, interest rates have gone up month on month for the last six months or Absolutely. seven months. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got Andrew Bailey, uh, who, who seems to kind of be acting almost in isolation. I don't know. They're, 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 I don't know if there's coordination with the government, but uh, Rishi appears to have some kind of strategy, he thinks, uh, to bring inflation down. Um, he kind of laid out five point a five point plan, yep. um, and one of that is halving inflation. Um, but it, what I find interesting about that is if the cause of inflation uh, is the things that Rishi is saying, then how can Rishi half it? Because he's saying there's global kind of forces at play. You know, you've got the after effects of COVID uh, exacerbated. You've yep. got the war in Ukraine, um, Brexit, Brexit. Um, and so these are issues which essentially um, go beyond the UK. And so I, I'm really curious. Um, Rishi's laid out uh, the five point plan, but he's not really given a massive amount of detail on how he would half inflation. Now, if the plan is to keep raising interest rates, yeah. I don't know how popular that will be. Um, so that's why I, I think it's uh, quite a wise move on his behalf to not come forward and immediately say how he's going to be doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think popularity is um, yeah, a bit of a difficult term when it comes to Rishi, and we'll find that out, I guess, when the general election does eventually happen, because I think he's damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of scenario. Um, but uh, obviously, look, we'll jump into that a little bit more. Uh, there's other issues with Mr. Sunak has been speaking on this week, which we'll touch on. Um, but we are a live show, and you can call us on 0208 687 7878. That's 0208 687 7878. Or on our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK, or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, so, in terms of our show today will also be joined by our roving reporter remotely today uh saf amadi saf you're on the line with us morning how are you doing you okay so i'm all good where in the world are you today saf uh i'm in a i'm in a field in cobra just uh my children my, one of my sons has got a football tournament here so ah. um but uh yeah still still uh managing to get on and uh wanting to join the conversation Excellent, excellent. Um, so, Z, kick us off with our news roundup, uh, about our main topics, uh, and, and, and yeah, let's what's been going on in the world. Tell us. Yep. So, uh, we're going to be, uh, so, weekly news roundup. Um, so, I'll fly through the, the topics and then we can go into some of them. So, uh, to begin with, we've got news, obviously, about the Rwanda policy, uh, and that was the deportation of uh, illegal immigrants arriving into the UK uh, to Rwanda. It was an agreement between uh, Suela Braverman, the United Kingdom, 
uh, and uh, Rwanda, which has uh, apparently a, a great kind of history of looking after immigrants, uh, <laughs> according to, to them. So um, this has been really, really interesting because obviously it's a massive kind of debate in the human rights sphere. Uh, and even when the policy was introduced, um, there was uh, a lot of kind of controversy as to whether it was legal or not. So I, I will talk about, uh, you know, that a little bit. Um, there's also the French riots going on, um, which is uh, always interesting. The French know how to riot. They could sell courses in it. I think the um, this one is in particular isn't related to public services or anything of that nature. It's uh, unfortunately it, it goes back to this racial profiling issue in France. Um, there's obviously a very diverse population. Um, you know, you've got a large Arab African population mm. in in France, and so. Um, it was the the murder of a 17 year old boy by the police which has uh, kicked off these rights so i'll explore that a little bit um i did want to talk about the titan submersible sure. um just a little bit i think there's some uh, interesting lessons there and also uh, some of the occupants were, were very interesting people um and then uh, there was a quran burning incident in sweden um almost where the swedish government not uh, were encouraging but allowed uh you know for this to happen um you know in the name of freedoms um and i think we should explore you know yeah. what the purpose of, of that freedom is Absolutely. Um, so just they're the four headlines and then our main main headline today will be uh the nationalization of thames water um and that's why i'm super glad saf styled in as well um, and i'm looking forward to kind of hearing some diverse views on whether that should be nationalized or whether it should remain private um, so that would be oh, yeah. the main topic. So kick us off, uh, kick us off with uh, the Rwanda scenario, and what are our, what are the thoughts uh, and reactions that we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, as I said earlier, so the Rwanda policy has been super, super controversial. Um, you know, strictly based on the the human rights element, right? Is deporting uh, people who arrive by boat, um, mm. which is considered illegal by the Tory government, uh, should they be deported to Rwanda mm. now? Uh, Suela, it's interesting as well because Stop the Boats has been Rishi's election campaign strategy um, and he's chosen Suela Braverman to kind of drive that strategy forward. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you draft, when you're drafting legislation um, and the courts turn around and say it's illegal, um, you know, it's, it's an immense waste of taxpayer money, firstly, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking policy, drafting, legis like, um, MPs agreeing to, to kind of get it through, etc., and then all the courts engaging to understand it. Hmm. That's a massively expensive process. Yep. So when legislation fails, it is seen as a massive, massive failure. And then for Suela to kind of say, well, look, we want to appeal this, um, you know, they're doubling down and they, they really want this to go through. Now, we need to explore whether it will actually be um, an effective deterrent. Um, I think, you know, immigration has been a problem for countries throughout history um, and I don't think you know stern policies like leaving them out in the ocean mm. or deporting them to another country has ever yeah. really deterred immigration if anything it just means people end up dying right or people end up getting tortured or you know sent to regions where they're not supposed to be etc so mm. I think you know it's it is a I, I'm on the side of controversy you know I, I don't agree with that policy um, but objectively you know there is a base in the United Kingdom uh, that Rishi is trying to appeal to, which mm. is really interesting given he's an Indian 
he has an Indian background, yeah. and he is trying to kind of secure that right wing base with policies like this. And you know, if this fails, you know, I don't see how Rishi mobilizes that vote at the next election. I mean, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, definitely about the the mobilization of the vote. But then, when you look at it from a cost base, and that's what we are trying to do here as well, economically, the, I read that it's cost is £165,000 per person yep. within four years. Um, you know, for every person deported, that's your cost, essentially. Yeah. Which is much cheaper than housing someone here in the UK. So where's where's the logic? Yes. It, it, so, yeah, that's it. And th so if we had the infrastructure to kind of deal with immigration in a proper way, you know, so to integrate some people, grant some folks asylum, you know, maybe have an extradition process for the ones we're not happy with. Um, that infrastructure, if we invested in it and didn't take the position of, right, you know, immediately we can't have any immigrants and therefore we're going to spend whatever it takes to get rid of them. Mm. That seems like almost a kind of reactive, chaotic approach yeah. as opposed to having a kind of invested strategy of, you know, managing immigrants. And that's where I feel like the costs spiral as well. It's this kind of deep belief of, well, we just don't want to deal with them, so we'll, we'll pay whatever. I mean, it's interesting. I'm just talking from personal experience here because both my parents are interpreters. So they actually have, in the last uh, few months, been going to Ramsgate fairly regularly where the boats are coming in. And right. what they're doing there is interpreting for people who are coming from various backgrounds, but obviously there are a lot of uh, those who are, you know, of, I would say, Pakistani origin who speak Urdu, and they are here, you know, to claim asylum. And obviously, the, uh, just having lent on that and hearing about some of the stories that they, they mention and what have you, the UK government just isn't closing borders saying, you know, you cannot enter. They're giving interviews, so resources are going there, people are being called, interpreters are being called. And, and from what I understand in terms of, uh, you know, how they assess these things is they speak to the person, you know, they ask them, okay, what's your story? Why have you come here? Um, and I think... Uh, some people are a little bit naive in, in their approach. Uh, you know, I think obviously there are, there are there are very many bona fide cases of people having to leave their country with you know, bona fide reasons. There are other people, um, and and this is what my parents were telling me, who who rocked up and, and said, and they said, why have you come here? And said, I've never visited London. I thought I'd come and have a look, you know, <laughs> yeah, in, okay. in their own language. Right. Now, when they very quickly realize that that isn't going to cut it, um, I think, uh, stories can change quite quickly yeah. and there, there can be a distressing uh, reason for them being here and, and I think even the even the you know the authorities they're like okay it seems like his story has changed it was very uh, calm tone before and now it's become quite more you know somewhat more of a um, an emergency yeah. and so you know, a bit more of a frantic tone so you know but they are giving chances so I think let's let's not make it a picture where it's you know completely closed off they are assessing people but at the same time if there's this constant flow what's the balance yeah no no and and that's a great kind of opposing argument I think um, and look you know obviously in any system that you design people will abuse it um, mm. and you know as to whether those people are abusing it because they got their story wrong, who knows, right? Yeah. Um, but here's what I'll say, right? So we Brexited, um, and the idea behind Brexit was to bring immigration down. If you go on the BBC today, 
I don't know if there's any evidence of Brexit bringing immigration down, mm. right? And here's how it's hurt us even more in terms of managing immigration, yeah. which is we were part of a coordinated agreement to manage illegal immigrants arriving on our shores with other European member states, yeah. right? And so Germany used to take a massive burden off of us. Um, and there were other surrounding countries which also used to do the same. Mm. Now that we've Brexited, we're no longer part of that agreement. We can no longer leverage that support. Um, and so if you correlate the immigration numbers, um, you actually see them start to go up as soon as we Brexited. Um, and, it, you know, I, I strongly believe that's based on the fact that we shot ourselves in the foot with um, our understanding of immigration and Brexit. Um, or, or at least the country did. Um, and, and I think that's a, where a lot of the criticism as well came from um, towards the folks who, who voted leave um, was because it was like, if you do, if you do want to reduce immigration, mm. then realistically, uh, actually working with EU member states, you know, keeps your numbers down. Um, but it was hard to have that vision at the time, I guess. Yeah, pardon the pun, but it looks like that boat has sailed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Saf, any thoughts on your side from your experiences? And no, I mean, I, 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 I've got to agree with both of you on a number of fronts. I mean, I think on the one hand, Dishan um, makes it completely, you know, like um, the argument is completely clear. I think also your argument about... Um, the kind of immigrants that we're getting in at the moment and you know are people here on not holidays as such but you know are, are they are they just here to um uh, essentially sponge off the system you know there, there is I, I think there is a there is an argument towards that but i'm actually I, I kind of take a very pragmatic view over this it's like ultimately i think what we we have a problem in this country with you know if we want to continue to grow we require outward immigration sorry uh, inward immigration um, we is that need still required? Of course it is. I mean, look at it. We, I mean, most of our most of our industry, most of our sectors are, are, are crying out for people. Mm. The service industry, you know, like um, manufacturing, farming, agriculture. Yeah. Um, they're all crying out for people. And where do you get? You know, at the moment we have a. You know, most of our um, most of the labour force are either not prepared to do those kind of jobs, or you know, like they have so many more alternatives uh, to them that they don't need to take those jobs. We have mm. so, such a lack of people in, uh, in, uh, in uh, we, we have this massive gap um, where we require so many people coming in, but um, we do require some immigration. I think if mm -hmm. they were actually honest um, and uh, were, were clear that actually this, is, this helps our growth, um, you could change the narrative slightly, but as you said, I think there is a, there's a very, very big political angle to this. Um, we even heard, you know, one of the uh, an MPs, I think it's Simon Clark, saying that you know this is this poses an existential threat to the Conservative Party if they don't get this policy to work, and if they don't get this through, um, we could see the end of the Conservative Party for, for you know for the foreseeable future. I think that is exactly what plays into their mind. I think um, there are obviously some that there is a faction of the Conservative Party that actually does believe that this is, uh, you know, that this is a good policy, that it's a necessary policy. But I think, by and large, I think there is a majority of the Conservative Party that thinks actually this is more of a policy issue in terms of keeping themselves in power. They need to get this through. So I think you'll see the push and pull. And I, 
I mean, there was, I, I, I actually read a very interesting piece the other day that it's, there's a very big likelihood that someone like Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak might have actually, this might have actually played into their hands uh, to a slight degree because it keeps the, it keeps the um, conversation about these small boats going. Um, realistically, how much of a problem is it? I don't think it's that big a problem. Yes, you don't want to incentivize people to sort of come here uh, with no skills and uh, not willing to, you know, like participate in society. But how many of those do you actually have? I, I, um, I fail to see it. I, I think this is, this is such a big, uh, it, it's, it's more of a, uh, the conversation has really swayed us off of uh, real problems that we're facing, high inflation, you know, cost of living crisis. I think this, this is almost a deterrent from, from those, from those conversations that, um, uh, one one can see why it's being done, but uh, I, I, I almost I almost think, I don't think it's an irrelevant conversation. It's just that it's not as big as everyone. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's it, it, like I I agree with uh, Saf's point on that we need immigration. You know, mm. I I just I I think if you speak to economists, you know, if the, one of the key comparisons they'll make to pre-Brexit and post-Brexit is the size of the workforce. Um, and, you know, I think another thing that's wrong, which we, uh, introduce, which logically seems correct, uh, is we offer golden tickets to wealthier people from other countries or smarter people from other countries. Yeah. Now I, I see that as destabilization. Um, you know, these are post-colonial countries that are recovering and developing their key kind of infrastructure and services. And we're saying effectively... Uh, well, as soon as you reach a marker of success financially or socially, um, you can have a golden ticket into our country. And so it creates this brain drain for me. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I don't like the prospect of only attracting wealthy, clever people, uh, brain draining uh, poorer developing countries and saying no to the uh, labor force which actually helps you know, build our economy, but also allows the developing countries some breathing space to develop. Um, so I, I, see it, it, I, I see it from a very kind of zoomed out perspective. Yeah, but put that in context. If we're not going to do it, you're not telling me other developed nations are going to do it. America, they go to countries like India and Pakistan and, and software development and, and those types of skills are massive uh, from the subcontinent. And they are offered jobs, um, etc. One of the reasons that someone was telling me that inflation has gone up so much in Pakistan in particular is because people who are, some some of them are working remotely. They're not even actually moving to the States. But because they're now being paid in dollars uh, and compared to the local rupee wage, you know, um, you know, they're very well paid in the U.S. Of, in, in their context, it's cheap labor. Yeah. But for local terms, being paid in dollars and, and getting that money has inflated uh, cost price in living. Obviously, they've got an inflation crisis anyway. Yeah. You know, the IMF have just gone in this week and I think they've said that they're going to, uh, um, you know, come in with a three billion uh, plan to help the country. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I think. I'm just saying, as a as a devil's advocate, yeah, in, in idealist terms, yeah, we should just take, you know, perhaps not brain drain others, but you know that other countries will do the same. So, you know, um, should we offer, you know, like you said, entry to the country to people who can effectively contribute? Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I don't think that's a, fl- I, you know, I don't think that's a wrong argument. I think, um, 
I think where corporations, you know, target key markets, um, you know, for a labor force, mm. that's acceptable. Mm. I think where the government are facilitating it, um, for me, it, it feels kind of counterproductive to the well-being of society. I don't feel like it's a government responsibility to be messing with that. So I, th look, I think if we look at it in broader terms, are we really saying, I mean, a, a lot of this immigration issue, Ukraine was one issue. Doors were open. We were happy to let people in. Obviously, they've gone through a tough time. Um, but I think uh, when I read a little bit about immigration, what his holiness, because uh, he spoke in, uh, I think it was 2018, uh, and he addressed the European immigration crisis as it was. Uh, and he talked about the sense of fear that was gripping Germany at the time and other Western nations. And he said, many people are afraid that their societies are changing beyond comprehension. And they feel that the nation's resources are being disproportionately utilized in favor of immigrants. While the term immigrant is used, the real issue for most people is Islam. And the fact that the vast majority of immigrants to Europe are Muslims freeing, fleeing from war-torn countries in the Middle East. And he referred to a recent report that immigrants were guilty of a high proportion, unfortunately, of sexual crimes, as, as an example, in Sweden. And he said, sadly, a report suggested that a high proportion of rapes or attempted rapes in Western countries were committed by immigrants. God knows better if figures are accurate, but when such reports are made public, it affects other nations as well. And the concerns and fears of the local continue to rise. And his holiness uh, continues, said, given this, let me make it clear, categorically clear, that any Muslim who violates the honor of a woman or abuses her in any way is acting entirely against the Islam's teachings. Islam considers such behavior as evil and has mandated exceptionally strong punishments for those guilty of such immoral and reprehensible crimes. Yeah. Um, well, look, uh, I, I find the notion that immigrants are like criminals interesting, right? Because mm. I think... Uh, you can probably find data that makes immigration or immigrants stand out disproportionately for uh, sexually violent crimes or, or kind mm. of uh, related crimes. Um, but similarly, I feel like you can probably find disproportionate data on um, white males in Sweden as well um, sure. and the crimes they commit. Yeah, domestic abuse. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, and then I, I also kind of... I think what really fr uh, frustrates me, if I'm honest, to share my personal view, right, is uh, it's the othering of human beings, right? So mm. in America, you know, they're referring to immigrants as illegal aliens. Yeah. Um, and that notion, um, you know, and maybe one of you can correct me, but othering, you know, was really invented by Hitler, <laughs> right? Like, mm. no, I don't know... I think maybe you could argue some of the, you know, in colonial. I mean, I don't think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say, I don't think it was created by Hitler. I think, you know, like humanity has a sort of um, psychological, yeah. Yeah, mm. it's a, you know, like a, has a long history of um, ensuring that, you know, like you, you can differentiate based on either skin color, religion, et cetera, et cetera. Those, I mean, there's, I think there's, there's a long history of that in uh, humanity. Having said that, I mean, I actually... Um, I agree with your point. I think, you know, there's always, you, you can always sort of drive out these uh, statistics and, you know, disproportionately um, uh, point your finger at uh, a particular set of people do, etc., etc. I think that this has been fodder for right-wing parties. I think the reality is, you know, we are in a structural decline in the West and especially in Europe. I think it's more, even more exacerbated. I think, you know, there is a uh, we, we, we've lost our power in, on the global stage. You know, like um, as somebody once said to me, it's like you know you've got the U.S. and the uh, uh, you, the U.S. and China 
who are now, um, you know, who are having a fight and uh, who are the, basically they're carnivores and Europe is the vegetarian in this carnival fight. Mm. They don't really have much to sort of offer anymore. They don't have the same sort of power. And I think they're coming to terms with that. And I think you, you see that in, it, almost immediately in the rise of the right wing parties. You've seen that sort of even here, for example. I think you've definitely seen a move towards towards the right from um, uh, most of the parties, most of the major parties anyway. You see it in Spain, Germany, uh, Italy, France. You know, all of the major European countries are, are, are having this shift towards that. And why is it? Because I think people are feeling less wealthier. They are worried about, you know, like their children having less of a... Um, you know, the, the standard of living is going to diminish um, through gen, uh, generationally. And essentially, it's an easy it's an easy thing to start pointing the fingers, right, to, towards another group that you basically say, oh, it's their fault. The fact that there's so many of them coming over, that's why we're getting poorer. So mm. we're going to stop that. And it's become such an easy way. And I think it's a very lazy trope, um, which has... Um, has it's always been there, but it's really it's really taken effect over the last decade. And I, I really I would say it it's happened more so after the last financial crisis in 2008. That you know it's it's really taken it's it's really it's almost gone on steroids. This whole uh, trope about um, immigration. Yeah. And um, it is unfortunate now. This is I mean it, it's it's the world that we live in, and uh, we we need to figure out a way how we either counteract that um, argument or. How do we sort of have a fair, fairer society? I'm actually, I'm actually in favour of complete free movement. I actually believe in a capital system where, you know, you move to an area, it will get, uh, there will come a point where, you know, that that, that place almost becomes um, uh, uh, overskilled, overthink, and you know, like the natural market forces will make it, you know, will will, will stop making it um, uh, a viable thing. So people look to to another area. And if you had, you know, like sort of uh, complete, I mean, it's a completely utopian sort of idea, but, um, you, you know, I think in, in essence, that's what I, I, I think. I, I, I'm actually all for immigration. I think immigration is, a, is one of the, is, is almost a keen, uh, core keen, uh, cornerstones of humanity and mm. how we've evolved. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, Seth. And it, it is, it's a really interesting debate. And I think, unfortunately, you know, it, that we're seeing the media kind of probably skew the debate a bit as well. But I, I'll end it uh, this particular story mm. um, with the kind of legal mechanism that uh, folks will, uh, should be tracking. Uh, so two out of the three judges found that there was a risk that asylum seekers uh, sent to Rwanda could then be forced back to the country from where they were originally fleeing, right? Mm. Um, so it's that key kind of human rights element where you know if they end up in the position that they started, that could fundamentally violate their human rights uh, if they if they are fleeing their country for kind of legitimate reasons. Uh, so it's the European Convention on Human Rights, um, which protects against torture, uh, which has kind of been used to to uh, push that argument. So that's what uh, we'll be following uh, over the coming weeks, and uh, we can recap on it uh, in the next show, maybe. Definitely. And I think the other part is obviously we gave a little bit of context about people who come here for those reasons. And again, just referring to uh, His Holiness, Hazrat uh, Mishul Ramad, the leader of the Ahmadi community, uh, his guidance was based on what the Holy Prophet had mentioned as well, is that the, when en- where this entering employment will enable immigrants to maintain their personal honor and dignity, 
It will also be a means of relieving the burden on the state and removing the frustrations of the local people. Certainly, every Muslim should keep in mind that the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, said that the giving hand is far greater than the one that takes. And His Holiness stated that in some cases the immigrants receive better benefits than the tax-paying citizens, which led to a natural frustration amongst the public. Um, so yeah, so I think there's there's key guides there uh, for both uh, parties. That's those who are, uh, you know, opening their doors, countries which are opening doors like the UK does. But then I guess, you know, you have to also equally have responsibility on those who are lucky enough, uh, you know, for those, for the right reasons, you know, have to emigrate and, and, and seek asylum. And, you know, hopefully the, the most bona fide and, and true cases do get that sanctuary, uh, which they do require. Yeah. So immigration, yep. chalked off. Yep. What it was our second topic, Z. So uh, we'll be covering. I just wanted to briefly talk about the French rights as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, here in Britain we have our differences with the French, um, but I think you know the uh, when they uh, to demonstrate how unhappy they are about things. Um, I think you know nobody beats the French and. They've been rioting uh, actually over something a bit more tragic this time, where uh, a 17-year-old uh, was shot. Now, why this particular uh, story kind of essentially sent the whole country into a meltdown mm. was because uh, the police officer claimed that a 17-year-old kind of pulled up in a vehicle next to him, um, and uh, sorry, that the 17-year-old tried to run a police officer over. Now, he was shot dead, uh, and because there was such an outcry over the fact that such a young boy had been shot, uh, a request for evidence, you know, by the public was made essentially, you know, saying, "Look, we want to know more. We want an investigation, etc." Now, an investigation has unearthed a, a video video footage of the incident, and the police officer was not run over. There was no attempt of of uh, being run over, and actually, they stopped the boy on the uh, side of the road, you know, in a car. He was in a car, uh, and they shot him dead. Um, as he was about to try and flee because he was afraid. Um, and he also happens to be, I believe, uh, I'll say Arab and I believe he's Algerian. I could be wrong. Um, now, he uh, obviously died from his injuries and uh, the French public are up in arms. And it, it, it goes back to this racial profiling issue in France. Mm. Um, they have a large Arab African population. Um, and I think over the last few nights, you know, 471 people have been arrested. Um, I think uh, there's, a, you know, there's quite a few people who have, who have even died. And I would say um, a majority of that, um, you know, aren't um, French Caucasians, right? Like, so, mm -hmm. so they are people from different backgrounds. Um, and how Macron's dealing with it uh, is questionable. I think, you know, uh, violence and force has been... Uh, the French authorities kind of approach mm. whether that's working or not you know is, is always questionable and and whether it kind of provokes further violence is probably uh you know it, you can easily uh understand why why people would believe that so um, is, is this immigration gone wrong i mean we talked about you know people rocking up at shores now you're talking about you know um you know, arab africans uh, algerians as an example who are embedded now i would say what maybe second to third generation by now yeah and i base that purely on footballing uh you know looking at the french team you people like zinedine zidane and those people of africa um, you know algerian background there is a mix there's no doubt about it yeah uh, kareem benzema is another example so you can see that if they're they're in their late 30s then yeah we are talking third generation here so 
why is it it's such a you know diverse topic now in France? Is it just because the, that society hasn't gelled? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think, and you know, um, it, it goes back to the immigration strategies of of kind of historic governments, where mm. you know there was a um, uh, we would essentially import you know groups of of immigrants and um, put them in ghettos or concentrate them into areas, mm. um, and so you've had this kind of natural lack of integration. Um, unless folks are like highly educated and taught the benefits of integration, um, generally, you know, even to this day, even in the UK, right, we have massive areas that are just essentially dominated by one culture. True. Um, and that's just because they haven't really ever deviated or recovered from any of the government strategies from like the 40s, 50s and 60s, right? Yeah. Um, like those areas, uh, uh, Bradford, was predominantly yep. Pakistani as it started, mm. and it remains predominantly Pakistani, right? So, uh, it you know, we've never ever really tried to innovate in this area. Um, mm. You know, it, I worked in community regeneration for a very short period of time. Mm. You know, and even where there is integration, so say for example with the Gurkha community yes. who fight on behalf of the British, yep. right? Um, they sign up in droves to the British Army. Yeah, Joanna they, Lumley's a big... Yeah, exactly. The, uh, Lumley right? had a massive yeah. campaign for the Gurkhas. Sure. Um, and uh, the, the project I actually worked on was related to, to Lumley's campaign. Um, and the issue we found was that in Farnborough and Aldershot, mm. uh, which is an army uh, kind of set, uh, area, there's lots of barracks there, uh, there was a massive divide between the Gurkha community and the native kind of English population. Uh, you know, despite the fact that the Gurkhas were learning English, they were fighting in the British Army, mm. um, and yet there was a massive rejection by those communities in Aldershot and Farnborough. Mm. And so the council found itself uh, not only having to spend copious amounts of money on trying to work out, you know, how to make these two communities merge, but then also deal with all the cultural differences. And then there was things, you know, we did see a rise in things like sexual violence and crime, right? Mm. Because there is that othering, right? So, for example, the Gurkhas, culturally, they carry knives. Uh, the right. Nepalese carry uh, uh, daggers. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a lot of stabbings in Farnborough and Aldershot um, right. between the native English population and the Gurkhas. Right, so right, the right. question of integration is, you, you know, you can learn English, you can go and get a really British job. Mm. Um, but that won't necessarily solve your issues um, unless the government really thinks long and hard about how to integrate a particular community. And then there are examples of where they have successfully integrated communities. I would mm. argue the, the Ahmadiyya community is, is very well integrated into the country. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a that's a very valid view. Um, but yeah, I think just just returning to topic as well, and just you know, I think France has suffered from you know that lack of integration, and it's you know the seeds have been sown for such a long time. And I think yeah, it's always been uh, a very much a, an issue. But I don't know, maybe they're they're a bit more um, patriotic about their identity as well. Perhaps they don't want to be a melting pot; they do want to be you know who they are. Yeah, um, maybe that's something that's innate within certain cultures i don't know so what's your thoughts there no i agree i mean i think um i think somehow in some ways i actually i, I commend the uk um in a large part because it's allowed for the large part i mean you know it's not always perfect but for the large part it's allowed you to sort of almost keep your identity um for example i think for most of us 
you know, most people with a bit of an Asian background, first, second generation would still support, you know, like the, the like, for example, some still support Pakistan or India or, mm. you know, like uh, I, I definitely know from my South African friends that have even immigrated here. You know, the, the, the idea of supporting uh, uh, England is uh, is uh, completely alien to them. You know, like mm. they'll still support South Africa. Same with the, you know, uh, Australian friends. So. And, it, and and it's happened, I think, to a large degree, relatively successfully. Um, I think, you know, where people are allowed to sort of um, still uh, still still feel very close to their own culture, uh, yet be accepted in uh, a nation. Having said that, even if you look at the US, for example, it's a, it's a completely different uh, scenario. You know, everyone is almost expected. I think it's almost, uh, I would say it's almost a bit of a quasi-religion over there that, you know, America is great and uh, what have you and you know everyone sort of uh, pushed in that direction i think the french find themselves in this very odd middle of the road sort of situation and i think it's it is i i think historically there is a slight um and i i'm making a generalization here um you know that there has been a, um uh from from some of the authorities there was always this uh, undercurrent of racism um towards other people that were coming in i think that is changing but it's been a very slow change. And I think what it essentially has done is it's culminated into this event. Having said that, I, it's not that this is a new phenomenon. You know, like we had the same thing, for example, when the George Floyd murder took place. Um, you know, you yeah. had, um, uh, 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 you know, a pushback from, uh, from society. We, we've even had it here, for example, when we had the riots in Brixton and uh, across London, um, uh, you, you know, when it was uh, the, the death of the young man, I, I forget his name. Um, you know, it was also based on race and uh, what have you. So I don't think it's a particularly new phenomenon. I think that uh, France is probably just uh, getting to grips with, with the first tranches of that. And I think a lot more people are feeling a lot more comfortable in their identity. And also, they, they want to sort of be recognized. I think that's the major thing. I think they want to be recognized as members of society. And I, that's Sometimes that can be a very difficult thing, right? It's a, it can be a very difficult transition period, um, uh, uh, sort of going from the old style of, you know, you just come in and you accept your position in uh, in society, and that's mm. you know that's one of a lesser <laughs> lesser thing. I mean, are we always I, I think you know uh, we, we always say my grandfather when he first came into this country, and what he would say to us is that you know you should be thankful for being here. You know, like uh, there, there was a, there was a slight inferiority complex with that generation when they came into the country, mm. um, and I think that has really shifted uh, over the over the last years. And to get to a new norm, I think it is it's difficult, and it will um, and, you, and you will have outbreaks like this from time to time. I think I think it's I think it's natural. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, um, yeah, you're right. Maybe it's a generational thing and, and you know, people are a little bit different about where they, um, you know, attack or well, the way they accept certain things as well. And then certain things they react to as well. So I think that's obviously uh, something that we have to bear in mind. But uh, it just yep. seems to be that the French do handle things a bit differently to the way the British do. I just wanted to quickly add as well, uh, news has just come in that uh, the French rioters uh, released three lions and an elephant from Paris Zoo last night. Um, so I thought that was pretty funny. Wow. <laughs> well, I hope there's no damage done, to be honest with you, because <laughs> yeah, that's right. not a serious You a say serious three lines. That's a, that's a UK thing, isn't it? Three lines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it. They're releasing uh, animals now, so it should get interesting. Wow. Okay. 
We'll see how that pans out. Um, what's our other news roundup topic, Z? Um, right, so we've got the Titan submersible accident, um, which obviously was a really, really tragic uh, accident. Uh, about 11 days ago, uh, five people were killed. Uh, it absolutely gripped the world, um, mainly because uh, for about four days, uh, I would say pretty much anyone who wasn't an expert believed that they were alive down there. Mm. Um, and we were all tracking it through an oxygen counter on the news um and what originally happened so if, if you're not aware i'll, I'll be very surprised if you yeah. weren't the, the five people went down in a submarine uh, sorry a submersible uh, the difference being that a submarine can take off from port but a submersible uh takes off from a ship uh they uh went down to go and see the titanic um the the submersible they used uh, we can go into a bit of why it's been criticised, but uh, unfortunately, once it got down there, uh, it imploded uh, due to uh, the the weakness of the structure of the submersible, but um, obviously also the, the pressure, the weight of the ocean um, uh, caused an implosion and five people were lost. I think uh, they were wealthy people um, and there was also a, a young uh, gentleman in there. Um, I wanted to start with just by talking about the occupants. Um, so two of the occupants were uh, Pakistani uh, in people. Uh, so you, you had a, the Shahzad, the Daud uh, family. They lived next in the next road to my parents. The next road. That's insane. So I, I know. did notice they were in Surbiton. Yeah, they're yeah. in Surbiton. They live one road away from my from my family. It That's was, insane. Yeah, it's crazy. That yeah. It'd be so neat. I mean, I heard about Small the story world. initially, but... You know, never would have thought it's someone on your doorstep. 100%. And um, I think uh, the other thing that struck me was uh, that he was the vice chairman of Engro Corporation. Right. Um, and Engro is um, a very, very successful co uh, for, uh, corporation in pa Pakistan. Um, so it was a massive loss uh, strategically for the country. Uh, Shahzada, if, if you read about him, mm -hmm. um, you know, he's done a lot in terms of uh, creating jobs um, and you know, building successful companies uh, and kind of approaches, mm. and so it was actually a, a very big loss for the business community in Pakistan as well. Mm -hmm. um, and he was kind of very deeply plugged into the the financial kind of private equity investment banking world in, uh, and trying to develop it as well. Right. Um, so a, a real loss for for, for Pakistanis. And then also, you know, the other folks who you know, you had um, a, a former Navy. Uh, person in there um, and then uh, Stockton Rush the CEO uh, who obviously has been deeply criticized uh, and let's talk about that right so uh, I think what is the the cost of innovation right like how far should individuals go to pursue like new uh, ways of doing things um, and I think that's where the debate's been lost a bit I think the whole world kind of got um, you know, obsessed with with criticizing Stockton Rush, and it, you know, I agree there were some really really stupid mistakes. Right, we we're talking about carbon fiber that just hadn't been tested down to that level. Same with the the perplex wind, uh, the, sorry, the the window that they used, um, and overall the the technological approach just seemed very shoddy when you mm. compare it. You know, relatively speaking to James Cameron, mm. um, you know, okay, granted he went down much much further. But if you look at the boat he used, you know, it was a highly complex set of instruments with like uh, different fail safe systems connected to different power inlets. Mm. So 
there was just so many different ways to kind of abort that mission. And when you heard Cameron describe how his boat would have kind of dealt with a situation like that, mm. you realize how far behind the Titan sub was just in terms of yeah. having the right safety kind of protocols. So um, really, really sad. And I think, you know, another thing that will kind of uh, will really affect us with is the, the ocean kind of exploration industry mm. it has done notoriously well not to have any significant accidents for a very very long time yeah um it's a highly kind of regulated industry um i guess the good thing you will see now is a lot more regulation come out yeah. um uh, kind of trying to police this issue but yeah i'd be keen to hear your thoughts as well. yeah no I, I think i think there's two things which surprised me about the whole incident one is obviously it's polarized opinion uh, a little bit because there was a, um, a very sad uh, immigrants. Um, you know, immigration seemed to be running through our show today. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot of people said that Titan, you know, showed you what it means to have money and what it means not to have money. Yeah. The outpouring and, and what we saw. Um, but just coming back to it, I mean, I agree with what you're saying about regulation. That's super important. It definitely is. But there was two, my, my, my two takeaways with this. One was the concept of going all that way deep, right, to go and see something. Now, the, the strange thing that I found out when I read was that they weren't actually going to see anything through the submersible. There's no windows. They were just going to see a screen of what the submersible was seeing. Obviously, the cameras were outside of that. So I'm like, why would you go to the bottom, literally to the bottom of the ocean, to look at a screen? Yeah. You know, you could send that down, you know, robotically if you really wanted to see it you know, from a machine's eyes, essentially, that's all you were doing. Um, and secondly, the second point that's was... Good point. Uh, but the second point was just more along the lines of, you know, as as a human society, like the Titanic disaster, obviously, you know, spawned the film, you know. Um, you know, people have... Tragedy brings people's interests, intrigue, what happened, you know, what was behind it you know i've uh, i've attended i've seen an exhibition uh, on the titanic where they uh, managed to take out part of the hull and they had that in exhibition you know they they've kind of made it almost like you know i think um you know i wouldn't say um you know a, 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 a theme park not a theme park no more just more along the signs of look this is what can happen when um you know navy or, or ships go wrong yeah you know something we as a human race want to learn from yeah it doesn't enough. happen again etc etc um but then i think to visit what's well, essentially a graveyard in the sea you know is is it was a bit of a morbid fascination for me and i'm like you know there's so much to see in this world do we really need to go and visit the sites of tragedy i don't know yeah i don't know Saf. It's a bit torn on that. Saf's uh, just off offline at the moment. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, yeah. so he'll be back on after the break. But um, but yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a strange one. I, I mean, I'm like, you've got you know, people do have money and it's their prerogative how they wish to spend it. But um, I just thought there were perhaps, I don't know. I, I think it's a bit of a morbid, morbid fascination in my mind. I, I look, I agree, and I think there's probably an obsession with doing things other people haven't done. Yeah. Yep, also valid. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it goes back to that thing as well. And even with Everest, of you know, so there's a queuing system on Everest now. Right, okay. Um, so, you know, is the risk-to-reward ratio worth it? It's, it's the ultimate kind of question. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there was a series of unfortunate events which probably, not Stockton Rush, but for the remainder of those people 
there were a series of unfortunate events that kind of probably uh, led to that. One of be, one of which was that I think there was uh, one father and son who were offered to go on the submersible but pulled out, and it was because the son went and researched the submersible before they went on it. Right. Uh, and even as somebody who who had no understanding of uh, submersible technology or engineering, mm. the son was able to discern that we shouldn't be going into this thing. Right. Um, so I think that says something, right? And uh, so I think it was unfortunate for those people who didn't have the opportunity to kind of do the research. I think uh, especially Shazada and his son, I think they were offered tickets uh, last minute um, and, and they took the opportunity then to, to kind of, well, they, it, not last minute, but in replacement of these uh, other people who pulled out um, but the the opportunity for everyone to really understand the safety issues around it were kind of lost, um, and so I uh, yeah I agree I think you know to pursue endeavors that um, other people can't relate to, and then to essentially lose your life doing that endeavor, there is there is always going to be a, a bit of a gap when it comes to empathy, and I think that's what you saw as well uh, online. Obviously, there was lots of kind of. Uh, criticism and joking about how all of that went down so yeah I just I thought it was a really really interesting incident and um, it really kind of brought up the class divide as well uh, as you say yeah because obviously we saw that that very unfortunate sinking uh, off the coast of Greece where 81 people more than uh, I think 81 people had uh, been recovered and there were mainly passengers from Pakistan Egypt Syria uh, Afghanistan and Palestine um, but they said that there were hundreds aboard this boat and many were still feared, uh, you know, missing and dead. So, yeah, I mean, look, it, both ind- incidents are very sad. Um, not that you say one is self-inflicted, but, you know, um, it's yeah. just, yeah, sometimes you just don't see the logic of humanity. But then perhaps it is just doing that thing which, you know, others haven't done or something you have a you know, a real intrigue and a fascination about. And then if you have the means to explore it, you, I, I guess you go ahead and do that. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those one of those unfortunate yep. times where I think, you know, sometimes humanity overreaches and nature tells or, or nature shows, you know, that their sh- rules should be respected almost. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And um, so this story will be trackable as well now. So there's an investigation going on. Mm. Um, there will be a kind of, real breakdown of exactly what happened, what were the weaknesses in the submersible. Mm. Um, I think we all know that the carbon fiber is highly problematic. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they found human remains as well, which was, you know, mm. uh, apparently, and they'll treat it with respect, they've said. And But I think just the whole science of how that entire tragedy occurred has really captivated uh, the world. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's the not knowing as well, you know, yeah. how, how those things went down. Was it this implosion? You know, we were, again, we were counting down on oxygen tanks and you were seeing that. Yeah, you know, exactly. Okay, this, yeah. If this is where they are or wherever they're floating. But then there was this also story that read afterwards that they said the US Navy did track something. That yeah. They heard an explosion and apparently they were aware. But, it, they, you know, for whatever narrative, it was allowed to kind of play out in the media in a certain way. And, yep. you know, this thing was given uh, a lot of airtime um, because it looks like it's a tragedy that's come from looking at tragedy. Yeah. Almost. I think there's, an, there's almost an ironical element to that as well. So 100%. Um, and I think the only kind of uh, so, you know, like peace and solace people found was that it happened quickly. 
and yeah. you know maybe they didn't suffer or feel any pain mm. um which was kind of reassuring um but just the yeah i think the the sheer uh force and viciousness of dying you know in, in a situation like that feels very scary yeah i think it does and i think people inherently have fears about the sea yeah you know if it's not things like jaws and and what have you natural elements but i think just the vastness and, and the power of nature um it, it puts you i mean somewhat in awe of what god's creations are and they have absolutely to be respected because when you talk about the depths of how deep they had to go and i think if you show you know, I think I saw a graphic of, you know, how many buildings or how many miles down you go. Yeah. And the different names that these levels of sea have. Yeah. And it's like, I think you do in, in certain ways have to marvel at creation and, and God's creation that I just don't think these things come about, you know, just, you know, as a big bang theory. 100%. I think this is God's hand, um, literally from, from, from the amazement of what you see. Yeah, and and uh, if I could like paint a quick picture there, so mm. you know, I I remember going to the top of the Eiffel Tower, right, and feeling that vertigo, and like I don't have have a fair of heights, but you feel that vertigo, and you you feel the you feel the sheer size of the Earth almost, right, like mm. being up that high. Yeah. Now it was considerably worse uh, when I was in uh, the open ocean in Bali, right, mm. like got taken out into the middle of the ocean. It's clear water. Yeah. Right, and so you and. and you're in a boat and you don't really see much, but when you get in and you've got goggles on and you look down, the vertigo you experience absolutely yeah. trounces oh, anything really? you feel standing on the okay. Eiffel Tower. Right, right, right. Uh, and you see how far down uh, the ocean goes. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it's absolutely mind-blowing. So, you know, that, that was, uh, that's the only way I can describe the, the kind of depth and power of the ocean. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, that's the thing, right? It's very rare to see something which is, you know, that clear and all the way down because when you look at the sea, it's normally, it's the depth and the darkness of the blue. And I think that's what's more scary is you just don't that's know true, what's below about. you. But like when you see from that context about vertigo, I've never even thought about it in those, uh, in that way. But it's interesting. It's interesting to know that. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely feel that, uh, you know, Allah's hand is in the creation of, of the power that we, we see in nature. Um, but um, please do join us uh, in our second half of the show we'll just go to our news break and we look forward to seeing you on the other side you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live it's the 1st of July and you're joined here from our studios at Bath of Thu in Morden in the south of London by myself Charles Alone and my co-presenter Zishan Mirza uh, Z, um, we have obviously touched on immigration has been sort of uh, a big topic through what we've been discussing so far today. Uh, let's move on to more domestic issues. Um, and let's talk about, we talked about, we briefly touched on cost of living earlier um, and the Thames water story. Uh, what's going on there and, and what are the effects that we see? Yeah, uh, so really interesting stories come out over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so Thames water, uh, which supplies the country's water, uh, supply uh, is heavily in debt. Uh, it's, I want to say it's over 20 billion. I think it's much more now. I, I think then they're looking closer at the numbers. I think it might be like closer to 60. Um, they were privatized in 1989 by Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and obviously, we'll, we'll 
revisit we'll visit this debate now of of kind of privatization versus nationalization mm. um but one thing i kind of want to just cover about thames water is just the the kind of shocking record that they have right like so mm. they, they we have one of the worst uh quali water quality in europe uh, we have a very very low quality right um the number of raw sewage leakages that have occurred by thames water goes into the thousands tens of thousands Right. Um, there are, if you type in Thames Water scandal in Google, you will see nothing, uh, you know, objectively from environmental agencies in the UK, fisheries agencies in the UK, the amount of times Thames Water have poisoned, murdered, um, you know, tons of animals uh, and, and different kind of an eco environments. So they are a deeply troubled organization always have been mm. um, and the privatization has effectively you know invited profit into utility which is the debate right so yeah. should essential services um, be structured in a way where a select number of people can draw profits from them now I can see in certain situations how privatization works for utilities, uh, especially where, say, the country isn't poor, right? Like, yeah. But I think, you know, where you have essential services that people rely on um, that kind of are volatile in quality, you know, that has to be managed by the government. It has to be in the interest of the people and only the people, right? Um, we don't want innovation in water technology necessarily in the UK. Mm. We're happy to we, I'm happy to wait for that to come from abroad, right? Like I don't want a private sector pushing the the limits of how to process water. Yeah, I want my government to take care of it so I can have a stable flow of it into my home. Yeah, uh, a clean type of water. Yeah, and if if it ever innovates, I'm happy for the government to spend extortionate amounts of money on importing that technology right. that's how i see it so i i just um i really struggle with the notion of privatized uh services and um i then you know tie it back to the 2008 financial crisis as well which is um the, you know profit is great and privatization is great when profit is present but as soon as the company starts to rack up debt yeah which uh, the folks in charge would have done when it was privatized, sure. um, you know, it gets handed back to the taxpayer to essentially sort out. That goes against the rules of basic private equity investing for me, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, if you buy a company and you rack it up with debt, the objective is to use that debt to grow the company and scale it. Absolutely. Right. Correct. Now, if you fail to do that, you have failed in your private equity venture. Yeah. Right. And you have to take that loss because you're allowed to take the win. That's the that's the structural, like fundamental setup to private equity as an industry. Yep, absolutely. Right, so if, if you have uh, wealthy people who uh, come into a business, rack it up with debt, and then it fails, it, it can't be on the taxpayer to ever foot that bill. I, I, I really, I've, I've read, so I would love to hear the argument <laughs> as to why that's acceptable. <laughs> But it's an essential part of you know living in the, living in any country, right? Water supply is something which is absolutely a human requirement. So is the fault the government's for you know allowing the private sector to take you know helm of something which is you know a, a basic human need and should be provided? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and and if um, this is why is is so if you watch Thatcher when she brought in the policy, yeah, she said that when we look back on this policy, ironically, she said that she goes when we look back on this policy, you'll see it as a resounding success. Wow. And I wish she was alive to see the news that came out. You know, because it, it's not a small amount of debt either. You know, and we're talking about a core utility for the country. Right. So it's a massive, massive issue, um, and. You know, I, I don't see which direction this goes in. Um, why can't the government come in and do what they did with banks? Take them, take a massive stake, give them billions of pounds, give them credit lines, and just say, look, you're not going to default. You're going to carry on doing what you're doing, and we'll continue printing money. Can the government not do that? They can, I, and I think the implication here is slightly different. Now, our banking system is heavily connected to the world, but yep. primarily to the West. Um, yep. Our water company is owned uh, by... Uh, the Chinese um, and and some really uh, different types of uh, countries and cultures. Um, so, yeah, I'm I think not there, sure. There was a Canadian uh, element to this British Columbia Investment Company, Ontario Municipal Employment Retirement System. They own about thirty percent of that. Of, sounds about right of Thames Water. So uh, now that makes the whole question of a bailout much more complicated because we're not necessarily bailing out our own firm yeah <laughs> right yes. we're, we're just bailing out a corporation that makes profit in the uk or then do, or then do you take back ownership then essentially and buy it back from them so then that's where for, we're at now. you know for you know cents on the well or pennies on the pound you know we'll take the company back and you know you can basically go away from from a failing failing system and, and company and we come in and, and do the necessary. And this is my biggest problem with it is if you want to condition the business back to health, it requires government ownership. Mm. And so then it will go back into government ownership and eventually, or, you know, let's say in 10, 20 years, let's say Thames Water suddenly recovers its health on its balance sheet. Yeah. The question of privatization will be raised again. Yeah. Right, because the government at the time will want to make money. And so it's that real narrow sightedness from Thatcher and that kind of almost poisonous cycle of you know and I feel really strongly about utilities. I don't you know, I don't think any other service should be nationalized. But railways, water, gas, electric, um I you know, I can think of countless examples in history where, you know, even the Middle East, um has mobilized its population by making sure that you know you utility benefits it either through core support or profit right, right? um but it the, the state always has the the tightest grip on on utility yeah um so the way it works in the uk has always blown my mind um and it's always been for me one of the fundamental reasons why uh you know i believe personally i believe more in kind of you know, a nationalization and left-wing approach to, to these things. But if you believe in that, the NHS is a prime example. It's failing. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's led by the government. I mean, how many more things are you going to entrust to the government if they're going to be run badly? Uh, and, you know, you pointed out, okay, Margaret Thatcher's scenario there. I just want to get Saf's thoughts. I know Saf needs to jump off in a little while. But Saf, uh, let us know what your thoughts are on this topic. I don't think we got him back. No, maybe he just doesn't have any points on this topic. Yeah, yeah, I doubt that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Saf, if you're around, but I think he's dialed in. But anyway, um, just coming back to your point, it's, you know, you said, okay, look, privatizations failed, Margaret Thatcher, etc, etc. 
But there's a lot of other companies which were privatized and have done remarkably well. Yeah. So out of, you know, however many were done at that time, because UK, you've got to remember, was shifting away from, uh, you know, a service sector um, to, you know, what we are now. Uh, essentially, we, we don't have any we don't have any manufacturing in this country. Privatization, I think, was um, probably a necessary evil. I don't know about evil, but yeah. it was a necessity at that point in time. Um, yeah, no. Difficult to say where we are now. Yeah, and look, yeah, I'm not anti-privatization across the board. I think it's utility. And Anurin Bevan, the the founder of the NHS, uh, you know, he he's got this. Uh, he he said something which really struck me, which was, um, the NHS will always be criticised, but that's because it's a public service that requires heavy scrutiny and should always be improving. Mm. Um, and that really struck me, right? Because uh, Bevan was essentially saying that the NHS will always be like a step or two behind society's needs. Um, you know, it, it is very difficult to get a public service right. Um, but I'll point to TfL, right? Transport for London. Yeah. Now, they, uh, they make a profit and all profits are reinv uh, reinvested back into, uh, you know, the TfL network. Yeah. The same isn't the case for National Rail, right? Mm -hmm. uh, National Rail is a kind of fragmented and privatized uh, organization. Yep. And you've got all the private uh, train networks who, who kind of run on that network. There's, for me, a stark difference in the quality of the two, uh, where you see the profits being reinvested by TFO and where you don't necessarily see them being invest reinvested by National Rail. Um, you know, personally, I've been taking the trains for 15 years. Yeah, I haven't seen a massive improvement. I would say COVID improved things on the basis of um, there's more variation in the in uh, hours and uh, the, the the kind of routes that people are taking. Yeah, uh, and the times that they're going. So it actually means that you know some the train routes are slightly less busy, but the actual infrastructure, you know, we've had the Elizabeth line come in. Yeah. But if you talk to anyone from the north, yeah. You know, they they they're just like we've not had any investment particularly for infrastructure. Yeah. And we were promised a high speed rail that and most of that was rolled back as well. Yeah. Um and so, you know, <laughs> there there's for me there's just a lack of commitment on on public services. Saf, what's your thoughts on this area? Can you hear me now? We can. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, perfect. Okay, yeah. Um, no, I mean, look, I've sort of uh, been listening in and I sort of agree with everything that you've said. Um, I think if you look at, uh, as Ishan was saying, I mean, uh, the privatization of utilities and infrastructure, we're pretty, we're, we're pretty much one of the only countries in the world that managed to do it and I think has been has been shown now to be incredibly unsuccessful. I think to, uh, I think the major problem with, with especially the, the water companies was um, there was such a push for dividend income, right? So you had all of the equity holders, and this really goes back into, for example, a lot of pension funds will hold a lot of these utility, com uh, utility companies and dividends, and the dividends are such an important part of it, but it does show the sort of failed nature of it because we rely so heavily on our pensions um, to pay these out 
yet at the same time we sort of seem to be bailing out on the other hand it's it, it is a very very marked um it, it's a very marked way of showing the uh, the inefficiencies of having done this to the utility companies um the, Again, someone like Thames Water, I mean, also, for example, the, the amount of debt that they have taken on has literally been spent to pay um, equity holders. And this doesn't, I mean, the whole thing doesn't see, it, it really smacks of um, uh, bad management and, and a lot of mismanagement. Um, would it, uh, and I think we've always had this problem, right? You know, when you go back even to back into the 70s, I think uh, public ownership was uh, was also showing um, some of the inefficiencies. Having said that, um, it was easy to redeploy um, capital, and you know the, the, there were the, it, the, there was a mechanism in, in effect uh, that if things were going badly wrong, the taxpayer held up. Now we sort of seem to be holding up, but also that money, those profits, seems to be going to the haves. This is a problem. I I, I couldn't. Uh, agree more. I, I've never really ever been in favor of uh, the privatization of um, of essentially infrastructure that is really, really required. I had a big argument about this with, uh, with, with a very, very, very big capitalist friend of mine um, uh, quite, quite a while ago. Um, because, you know, essentially, I mean, look, we need infrastructure. Infrastructure uh, essentially is a growth, is a driver of growth. You need good infrastructure. Now, if we were just to put this down to the private sector, private sector, in, in effect, it's, it's a profit-led, um, you know, it's, they are profit-led organizations. So, for example, building a road between two places. Now, if you're going to do a cost analysis, sometimes that road may not make sense, but it's required, right? Because even a small amount uh, uh, of that use is, is needed. Same with rail. We're seeing all of these lines being closed down, you're, you're getting more and more sort of small towns that are getting isolated. And it's, it's, it is a problem. I, I, I can't agree more. I, I'm not entirely sure what they can do because this is going to come at a big cost to the taxpayer to sort of re, um, to re-nationalize it at the same time. Um, I, I would go as far as saying I think more scrutiny needed to be made uh, on those people that are governing these, uh, these companies. Uh, because as far as I can see, there was pretty much none. Uh, over the last uh, over the last couple of decades, um, and yeah, I I, I I feel very strongly about this is one thing that I feel particularly strongly about, and uh, I, it's 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 the one part where I would always say I've never understood the the um, privatization policy on these on these companies. I think uh, where possible, we should be uh, they they should be in the hands of the government. Um, they should be well run. Um, and that again, you know, like you, you can sort of bring through regulation. So I'm not really sure how they find themselves out of this because because these these companies have amassed a large amount of debt. How do you get rid of that debt? I mean, you know, we also, I mean, for example, I mean, for what I do, we actually hold some of the uh, uh, hold some of the bonds for some of these companies. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we, we we obviously we were expecting some sort of return, and and again, it's through a private, uh, you know, like through private individuals. But is it fair? I'm not entirely sure because we, and actually one of our one of our major reasons of investing in them was like, look, it's still water, regardless of what you're getting from it. There is no way that the government cannot um, ultimately back it up, right? So you, you, you should 
it, it, it's essentially it's almost a government bond with a with a better yield. So the whole thing, I mean, this, this is where capitalism, you know, like for me personally, it's it's it started to get uh, people. It, it has really veered towards the sort of greed uh, greed side of the spectrum. Um, we yeah. we have allowed these companies to sort of um, uh, be operated in 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 incredibly inefficient ways. We've allowed um, for profit to sort of uh, be the forebearer to everything else, um, and it just and it's really showed um, for the first time. And I think in a in a really marked way that it just doesn't work. And um, uh, so this one, Dishan, I'm going to tip my hat off to you, and I agree with you completely. Yeah, I'm, 100%. I'm, I'm super surprised. <laughs> no, no, I'm pleased, and, and I think yeah. it's an accurate assessment you made as well. You know, I I um I think. You know, I I personally just resent the fact that somebody gets a dividend from water payments. You know, based yeah. on what Saf has described, and but you know, I can understand why and why it's kind of necessary to the economic system. But uh, I I think you know certain things have to have to be preserved away from profit and um, capitalism and you know that kind of. I think historically, Cycle. I think that, yeah, there, there, I mean, historically, there was a problem, right? Well, you know, when, when Margaret Thatcher, I mean, essentially, she was trying to follow the US model um, of being able to sort of uh, privatize more and more and, you know, like deregulate uh, um, many industries. The problem that we had at that point was we didn't actually have that much industry. You know, industry was already in decline. Manufacturing was already in decline. So she was pretty much hampered into what she could sell. So yeah. the idea that, and, and actually, I mean, we go back to it, and I still think it was the wrong thing to do. It put a lot of money into the coffers of the uh, of the government at that particular point, but um, it had, it, you know, like it's had this long term consequences, which uh, one can only say it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's just had a, it's had an incredibly negative effect. I mean, and this is where we are. We're now all going to be paying. From my understanding, I, I think. It's going to cost most. Uh, it's going to cost the taxpayer almost four hundred pounds per person, just to uh, you know, like just to sort of renationalise uh, this water company, which is, which is, I mean, for want of a better phrase, it's bonkers. That is <laughs> no, absolutely really madness. Bonkers. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, and you know that the lack of the em- lack of empathy from the public primarily stems from rising prices right like and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know rising prices you know we're always told is because you know innovation and investment is required in the infrastructure well you know where's the where's the investment and infrastructure if you've got 21 billion pounds of debt you know and um you know you've got a really bad track record of actually producing good water like good water quality or you know not having leakages you know, Thames Water's got a horrendous record. So, yeah, it, it's just a bad situation all around. I don't see any good coming from it. Saf, thank you for joining us today. I know you have to uh, jump offline and take thank care you of very domestic much, matters, guys. but thank you for joining us yeah. today. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Saf. Good, good. So, yeah, so obviously let's see how this Thames Water situation pans out. You know, we're already dealing with, you know, high gas prices, high electricity prices, something that all of us, you know, are feeling, um, you know, mortgage prices are going up. I mean, sorry, mortgage payments are going higher with interest rates at 5%. You know, I think things are becoming remarkably, remarkably tough here, um, you know, for a lot of people, especially for those, you know, who are, you know, perhaps, you know, nearer the minimum wage. And, you know, it's not easy. It is not easy out there. Yep.
I think that's something we have to acknowledge. And I think that's where, you know, we talk about charity in Islam quite a lot. And I think sometimes we have to, you know, look look within ourselves and see what we can give, you know, to help people along in this scenario. I was reading Al-Islam last night. I was reading, um, you know, different extracts. And, and I think, you know, what occurs to me in a lot of the books, you know, that, you know, great scholars have written in our community that mm. is there has to be a sense of responsibility uh, from the wealthy or, yep. uh, you know, from those who are able. Yep. Um, and if you don't have a sense of responsibility over your kind of peers and your fellow citizens, mm. um, then uh, society is almost destined to fail. Yep. So like even from a very spiritual religious perspective, if you don't carry that sense of duty and responsibility yeah. over those who are less able, um, you know, society is destined for failure. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, in the book that I was reading, it specifically says that if the wealthy fail, then don't, you know, almost don't be surprised if you, things occur in the world that essentially do it for the wealthy, essentially confiscate it. Right. And, and redistribute it mm -hmm. um, and obviously that's really interesting because it speaks to the notion of communism um, which is you know the redistribution of wealth but it's important to understand that the idea you know ideas like communism and socialism that draw so much criticism in the modern age mm. um, you know are stemmed from protecting people's rights and uh, access to essential services, right? Like that was the the primary reason and only reason. All the things that followed from the different regimes that have enacted communism, you know, like uh, subjugation, torture, deprivation, mm. um, you know, that that comes down to the the rulers and the people of the time, the communist rulers and people of the time. But um, I think conceptually, all of these criticisms that we have about society uh, go back to. Um, trying to treat humans equally um, and so for me uh, you know we, we for, for things to get better in society I do feel like the narrative has to change as well um, because the narrative right now is is focused around consumption uh, profit uh, the the aggregation of, of items and worldly things mm. um, and it, it needs to be the other way around it needs to be uh, the protection promotion of essential services um, and uh, preserving uh, that because it supports a healthier society yeah I mean obviously Islam is something that does does promote you know the concept of zakat is redistribution of wealth you can't just sit on wealth and hoard it uh, you know the concept of zakat is almost a tax on, on, on what you have uh, and that should go back into society, and you know, for the for the betterment of 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 your fellow man. Uh, even the concept, and we just recently uh, celebrated Eid al-Adha, uh, which is um, the second Eid within the year uh, that follows the um, you know the finalization of, of Hajj, and then obviously commemorates to a degree um, Hazrat uh, Ibrahim's uh, Hazrat Abraham's um, sacrifice that he God commanded him that you know to sacrifice his son, and when he was ready to do that. God said, actually, you don't need to do that. But, you know, in the spirit of sacrifice, he was ready to do whatever Allah willed him to do. Uh, and now, um, you know, symbolically, what do we do? We sacrifice, you know, in the most humane way possible, uh, you know, animals on that day of Eid. 
And then what happens is that's the distribution of that meat isn't just for the family to, you know, have food and have a, have a great day and just enjoy themselves, but it's also a third of that is due to go to the poor. So that's something that obviously that uh, the community does, uh, you know, via our online um, systems that we have that you can, you know, give these sacrifices to, be it Pakistan, be it Africa, uh, you know, where the poor and needy are. Uh, so I think that concept of, of Islam, you know, should be something which we should all look at to make sure we do that from with ourselves because we often look at society and we think society needs to do these things. But I think that's where we talked, you talked about responsibility. Yeah. And I think responsibility is key. If, if we are, you know, good Muslims who are following what our practices should be, we should be the ones who are leading that and not just always telling society and governments what they should do, but we should lead by example, perhaps. I think that's a great point. Um, yeah, and, and I guess I want to finish on this then, which is, mm. you know, uh, Western society has kind of chosen capitalism as its modus operandi. And, yeah. you know, I, I, it's funny because the Chinese aren't capitalists, right? They're communists. Yeah. And I would argue they've done capitalism better than capitalist countries. Um, and, you know, they don't suffer from the same things we necessarily do as an inherently capitalist society. Yeah, but they're, they're new capitalists. They they've are. Been, capitalism has been based on markets. Yeah. It's been on based on efficiency. And we became that way because... You know, communism was never a thing in the West. Yeah. Um, but we talked about privatization and, and those types of things, and that's the way we chose. So that was our starting point, and away we went. Debt was written up, etc. I think where the Chinese had that head start is they were saving society for centuries. Exactly. And now that's why you may say, yeah, they're doing capitalism probably better because they're coming from a, from a strong base, but their consumerist thirst is something which is quite amazing to see yeah yeah absolutely you know, because i agree they buy anything and everything that has a brand behind yep, it i agree and whichever country you go to they will cater for the chinese uh, uh the chinese one but and and but i think that's because of the massive success that's come out of china like china mm. almost you you said it yourself just there right is yeah. fundamentally they structured their society in a socialist way in a communist mm. way yeah and it's almost like they saw capitalism as a little tool to interface with the world, right? So they were like, externally, this is how we need to interface with the planet. Yeah. Uh, and they've been incredibly successful at it. Um, if you listen to Indian diplomats uh, speak about China, there's, uh, and you can go and Google this story for our listeners, and you can corroborate it from different politicians in different parts of the world, uh, and that's important because the claim I'm going to make is massive, which is China has lifted approximately half a billion people out of abject poverty. Um, no other country has remotely come close to ever achieving that in history. Um, so you, you have to really ask yourself, what are the Chinese doing? that's so different to the rest of the world and that allows them that success. And it's not just the fact that they're a manufacturing hub. Um, it yeah. is this fundamental belief in structuring your society in a highly pragmatic and successful way. Mm. So that even if you do choose to leave the communist uh, ecosystem, 
you can go and be successful in any any system you want to be successful in. Um, and so for me, that's the where the argument of socialism and communism comes from, mm. is it doesn't come from a place of eliminating capitalis- capitalism. Yeah. It comes from a place of equipping your society with the right tools so that it can go and succeed in a capitalist environment. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think that does make sense on many levels. So, But we'll see how that pans out. The proof will be in, in decades and probably a century down the line if, if, if it's played out well. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll have a short break and then we'll return to our final major topic, which is the recent burning of the Quran. So we'll come back to that. Just join us after the break. <laughs> Azrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the Holy Founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, continues the work of the Holy Founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Amadi have always practiced this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none, is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Amadea Association. Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movement that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did 
when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars have been fought in different parts of the world. He worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, It is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, that were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Ahmadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. And I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Ahmadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Ahmadis in this country, but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us. And that's very important because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen. And I thank you for that. The Ahmadiyya community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, to the richness of our community, and that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society, the important charitable causes that you support, not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live on the 1st of July. It's 11.40 a.m. And um, yeah, we've touched on various topics today. Um, we've gone through uh, the immigration and news roundup. Uh, we talked about Thames Water in particular um, uh, and where that's leaving us. Um, and the other sad story again, which has sort of come up, Z, tell us a little bit about the uh, Swedish incident this week. Yeah, so um, this has been an ongoing thing, but uh, Sweden recently allowed for um, a really controversial individual to kind of do a very public Quran burning uh, session. I don't know what to call it. Like, yeah, it's just just a kind of display. <laughs> um, and you know, I I always I always question where this kind of stuff comes from, right? Because. It, it, I really resent the, the concept of freedom of speech, right? And I'm going to tell you why. Because mm. for me, the, the concept of freedom of speech, right, firstly, obviously, was invented for the protection of citizens in a, a society structure, right? But it was also kind of invented to push the limits of academia, right? So, like, 
um, you know, I need to be able to explore this subject with you freely, hmm. you know, um, in order for us to both become more advanced in our understanding of it. Okay. And, and so, you know, that's where the notion of freedom of, like, for me, the freedoms uh, of, of uh, speech comes from hmm. is that, um, you know, if me and you, for example, are going to go and try and work out how to make society more progressive, yeah. right? We might need to explore uh, racial uh, uh, kind of features, right, or, or mm. kind of characteristics, right. And so we might say to one another, "Look, we're going to say things that could be stereotypical or discriminatory, right. In the interest of achieving this progressive policy, yeah. we'll allow for that, and and so then we'll we'll." have that kind of open space to create this policy right right and okay. so then that that makes sense to me right for, from a freedom of speech perspective to say look let's get rid of some of the rules so that we can achieve something good okay sure. um now if it's not for that reason mm. you're you're a bad faith actor i see you as a bad faith actor yeah and a freedom so if your freedom of speech is to say i want to go and provoke another group or discredit another group, yeah. or destabilize their belief, um, I, I don't understand the freedom being exercised there. And yeah. I think you aren't exercising freedom, you're exercising uh, malicious intent. Mm. And then let's talk about the tangible um, fallout. You're aggravating a community of people in the name of freedom. Uh, you're upsetting the foreign policies of several countries right the world is made up of muslim countries that's a fact irrespective of your belief about islam or its political output in the world you know nothing changes the fact that we have muslim countries in the world and as any citizen in part of any country you should want to have good relations with other countries Right, like that's how trade, holidays, all, all the good stuff happens. And so, you know, these small acts of Quran burning turn into massive foreign policy debates between countries. And so, you know, it then begs the question, right? I can promise you now that Sweden will absolutely, and you know, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I'm saying that Sweden will suffer consequences if they are trading with Muslim countries, right? Muslim countries mm. are not going to look upon that favorably. Yep. And there's already an example of that. So Turkey, yep. Erdogan has yeah. come out and publicly condemned. And some will even go further as, and, and even threaten, you know, and say, you know, Sweden will face the consequences. Now, it is religion, right? And, you know, we are all entitled to our freedoms, but I just question anyone who goes out into the world to aggravate. <laughs> like I just, I've never understood yeah. that that notion. Um, so you know, I would. I, I've read a lot about it. Um, I, I still have never been able to establish what these things achieve, other than fulfilling a racist group uh, people's wishes. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think I think it, it preys obviously to the sensitivity of. I mean, it brings up that essence of the importance of the Quran to us as Muslims. 
you know, it's, it's the word of God. It was revealed, you know, to the Holy Prophet of Islam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, it's something that, you know, is a living, uh, breathing book that, that we all believe in. And it's something we hold dear to our hearts. And, and it, there's actually a hadith, which is obviously one of the sayings of the Holy Prophet, that when one passes away and they're in their grave, and when the last person leaves the graveyard, um, what become comes in between you and the angels when they come and want to take your, you know, um, you know, your your book, you know, of of good deeds and bad. Uh, the Quran is an interjection for you. You know how much you read it, how much you applied it, etc. So again, that just shows you the important level of of this book. It's something that's not just for now; it's for your hereafter. So it's something that's super important, obviously. And as as Muslimon, we as Muslims, we 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 hold it in very high highest regard. It's the most holiest book that we can have because it's Allah's word, and it's been passed down and never changed accordingly. Yeah. Um, and I think for someone to take that, you know, in particular, you, it's a hate act. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else aside from that that you can say. Um, you know, when you look at the rationale behind it. Um, because again, this isn't a, something that's new that's come up in Sweden. This happened in 2020. Right. You know, it's not something that that's unheard of. And His Holiness spoke at that stage about it, and he said this in particular. And this is in regards to Sweden. He said the truth is that most people in Sweden and other Western countries remain unaware of the true teachings of Islam, and this enables extremists to take individual verses of the Holy Quran completely out of context for the sake of their false propaganda. People who conduct such hateful acts have no knowledge of Islam or what the actual conditions laid down in the Holy Quran are for jihad. They ignore the fact that the Bible has many more verses that can be taken out of context and used to justify the use of force. Regardless, it is the duty of Ahmadi Muslims to introduce and exemplify the truth and peaceful teachings of Islam in each and every city and town so that people understand the reality of our religion. Yeah. So... Can I emphasize that a bit? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, and so... When you, um, if you see senior folks in our Jamaat, or if you see uh, even Muslim preachers, um, people will go up to them and try to challenge them, right? They'll ask them very difficult questions, or they'll try and provoke them. And one thing I find like really admirable about scholars is, well, most scholars I should say, is uh, they don't react like there's a real calm um, and I, I think um, that's the only thing I would say from the opposing side about like for, for if you're a Muslim and you're offended by this kind of thing is you not reacting to it is absolutely key as well um, yeah. because you know I, I like the idea of not entertaining any of that um, and not validating it and not engaging it yeah. and, um, and just treating it for the, the xenophobia and racism that it is. But do we have to stand up um, against something that you, 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 know, you, you hold dear and, and holy? Because when it comes to things like um, you know, the character of the Holy Prophet, we as Muslims are taught that we should defend that. It doesn't mean with arms, yeah. but in open engagement you know, and conversation. That, there's nothing wrong with that side of things. But I think we also have to stand up as well when we see someone, uh, you know, doing this. But it, like you said, it doesn't mean you go to arms and, and, you know, perhaps go down on that route. But, you know, you know, dialogue and protest, I, I think, are, are key, perhaps key and tools but, at that. But I think it's, do we need to stand up 
I, I think it's the other way around, right? Like in the sense that it's, uh, I think other people feel like they need to stand up because the coordination and strength Islam generally has speaks for itself. Yeah. Right. And like, it's one of the few religious um, assets of the world, right? Like mm. where it remains in such strong numbers, yeah. you know, despite the sectarian divisions, etc. Sure. Yeah. Um, I can still find common ground with somebody else who's Muslim, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like not, you know, not necessarily Andy, yeah. but because they're Muslim, I can find common ground with them. Sure. Um, and we can speak in a way where we uh, can relate to the strength of our belief. Yeah, uh, we have a lot more in common than, exactly. than, than different. Yeah, exactly. Of course. And, and I think that's what threatens the world, mm. which is why I'm almost like just we're already above. And so there's no need to talk back down to it there's nothing to stand up that, that's how i almost see it but you're right obviously we shouldn't allow for people to disrespect and you know pillage something that we believe in absolutely it's the word of god in, in our yeah. eyes so yeah I, I i see your point where you're coming from about taking the higher moral ground and i think in islam generally speaking we are taught that yeah you know exactly, you rise yeah. above things you don't go down to other people's levels and if you can find your way you know above and beyond and look look through those sort of things uh, i think yes you in majority of situations that is the case but i guess i think those who are sort of antagonists and people yeah. who are looking to you know prompt and, and probe and you just get a reaction they'll go to where it can hit you hardest and that's why we saw those charlie hebdo uh, caricatures of the holy prophet you know you've seen the burning of the quran etc because there are very few other areas i guess that you can hit uh, Islam directly that will prompt an immediate response. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then the thing is as well, like, um, obviously, you know, most Muslims are sensible, but if you're aware that there's a crazy bunch of people that exist, yeah, why are you doing whatever you can to provoke them? Like, mm. I wouldn't go into the heart of Texas and start burning an American flag because I know I'll get shot. Right. Right. Yeah. So, like, I'm not saying that you deserve it like, but it's just kind of like you're inviting you know the pe the nefarious people into your life right yeah. but when you do these things mm. now you're, you're not actually even appealing to the sensible people most sensible muslims mm. will read that as a headline and go okay and just carry go on about their day right yeah so you are you're mainly appealing to the folks who want to fight right so you're sure. looking for a fight yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. so for me the entire thing is just bad faith i think even as a government Sweden has spectacularly failed. It it deeply impacts your foreign policy mm. objectives. You know your your ability to uh, be diplomatic with other Middle Eastern Muslim countries, uh, South Asian ones. Uh, you know it, I just don't see any angle where it can be good. Even the freedom of speech uh, or freedom of movement kind of element, mm. I I don't buy into it. Yeah. For, you know, for me, for you to, to validate those freedoms, there has to be some kind of progress or good that comes out of it. Otherwise, uh, you know, I'm not really interested in, you know, you exercising your freedom. Like, I, I don't see why you should be able to. Um, and, and that's where I go back towards the state. And, and, you know, I think the state should impose upon you because if you don't have a correct interpretation of how to exercise your freedom, Mm. then perhaps the state should take it away from you um you know so and and that's where i feel like people get the balance wrong they're like i want all the freedoms to be racist and xenophobic yeah and then if the state does something about it my freedom's been breached no yeah. like sorry i don't entertain any of that 
Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think freedom of speech is, is, is a shield that some people hide behind to be, you know, as you said, racist, xenophobia. All those sort of things do come into play. And it's sad that we use terms which are good to have open conversation as you said if you want to have a conversation you want to be progressive and you'll say okay we will discuss stereotypes but it's not coming from a a position of you know trying to not demonize but you know just make light or you know uh, make certain comments or stereotypical um sort of um assessments you know and predispositions but you want to move things forward then then so be it but um, yeah, it's just a shame that this day and age that these sort of things, you know, still happen because, you know, you talk about people, you know, burning crosses, burning Bibles, and it just doesn't make sense because, you know, for us uh, as as Muslims as well, it's a universal religion. You know, our holy books include those of the Old Testament, you know, uh, yeah. the, the Torah, etc. You know, so there is a respect for religions. There is respect for the the prophets of other religions. We We... You know, Christianity is obviously, uh, it's not, I mean, in, in one way it's juxtaposed to Islam in, in the concept of the Holy Spirit, which we don't believe in. We believe God doesn't have any partners. But, you know, uh, Jesus is a prophet of Islam in, in our eyes. And, you know, he holds a very special place within Islam. Um, you know, and that's something that we obviously as Amity Muslims, you know, in, in, in the being of the promised Messiah, we do talk about the second coming of Jesus. So, you know, that the promised Messiah would have attributes of, of uh, Hazrat Isa, as we call him, um, you know, Jesus. So I think that's the thing. Again, there's so much common ground. There's so much more that we have in common that we don't have in common. Yet, it seems that, you know, we, in in, in the in the areas of this freedom of speech coverage, try to do these sort of things which just you know, cause bad blood. Yeah, and, you know, look, it it discredits real freedom of speech cases, right? So, Mm. like, Jamal Khashoggi being murdered by the Saudi government. Yeah. uh, That's a real case of freedom of speech being impeded upon, right? Somebody from the press being murdered because of what they're trying to relay to the public. Sure. Right? That's real freedom of speech issue. Yeah, as is... What we were talking about in the break, what's happening out of Russia and Putin. Exactly. We don't know what's you know what's real, but freedom of speech there is important. Exactly. So we know how the Russian people are feeling because probably right now they're all been tarred with one brush that they're you know they're behind a dictator and they'll support him. Do we know that? No, we don't. Exactly. And so for me, you know, those real cases, the academic angle of you know wanting to push and learn things, those are real. Uh, everything else is is, uh, is is being mis misappropriated as far as I'm concerned yeah it seems that way and I think obviously um, I think within society in particular I think having more knowledge and learning about one another is equally important you know as opposed to just knowing what you know and about your own faith perhaps yeah and I think you know I think that's something we should be a little bit open-minded about and there shouldn't be that fear that you know that you can't take other learnings or you know understand where people are coming from I mean, in my mind, when when uh, you look at certain things, um, just to give you an example. Um, uh, when we go to mosques, uh, you know, like here we're, we're in our main complex in Battle for When you go to the mosque, um, uh, this is a personal thing, obviously. Uh, you know, you feel quite serene when you go to a mosque. It's quite calming, you know, in terms of, you know, the the way you can say your prayers, etc. It's built a certain way. Mosques, are, you know, 
we obviously they're all facing towards Mecca. You know, there's a unity that you feel uh, when you're together, when you're saying your prayers, uh, be it special prayers like Eid or be it like your, you know, your, your normal five daily prayers, your obligatory prayers. Uh, but I feel like when you go to places like uh, when you see a church, they seem very old. You know, there, there seems to be more um, sort of this ceremony. The the settings are quite, you know, it's dark pane glass and those types of things. And it, it's something that I find uh, my reaction to is different. But it doesn't mean it's, you know, in my mind, I think, well, what we are is correct and what you are is yeah, completely 100%, wrong. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Right? Because, couldn't agree more. You know, there is a, you know, you, you, they're praying, obviously. Um, you know, so I think it's hard, you know. I think if we as Muslims want to be judged in a certain way, how do we judge? You know, perhaps you shouldn't judge other people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, like most Christians I've met who recognize me as an Ahmadi Muslim, hmm. again, you know, they they look at me and think, "Oh, I've got more in common with this guy than I have a regular person." Yeah. Like, you know, and they don't. They, we don't go into it at a fundamental belief level. Not yeah. in twenty twenty three that people just don't interact in that way. Yeah. I, I don't feel right. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and I, so, it's just so. It's such a backwards way of like addressing the differences between the the faiths. Mm. You know, and absolutely they should be debated, and that should happen. And um, you know, it can even get a bit uncomfortable. That's okay. But the moment you deteriorate into like violence or Quran burning, like the, the narrative's over. Like there, there is, there's nothing left. So, yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no coming back from that. <laughs> yeah. There's no middle ground. There's no concept of mediation there exactly. or anything other than antagonism. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, you're right. I think perhaps on a, a government level, you know, if we can come together when it comes to economic policy and, you know, doing things all together to make sure for the greater good of our economic well-being that central banks can can do things like coordinate efforts and buyouts, why can't governments come together and say, look, there are certain tenets of faith that we are going to, you know, protect, you know, and deem certain things, you know, non-negotiable. You know, I think there's a general thing that when you talk about anti-Semitism, it's one of those things which is just not tolerated. And that is, be it strength from the Jewish lobby and what have you, but maybe for right reasons, you know, in that regard. I mean, I know, you know, Muslims sometimes do struggle with the way, you know, perhaps, you know, Judaism is protected and, and what have you. But perhaps in certain ways, it, that's something where we would like to afford to ourselves. Well, it's just nice to see what Zionists are. But uh, in terms of, you know, yeah. the way things are, you know, even from a freedom perspective, that's not something we want to go down. But, yeah. Um, Interesting show, Z. Thank you for your research and contribution. And I hope Thank you, you enjoyed our conversation today at The Voice of Islam. And join us next week.